part of Double P Media, doublepmedia.com. All hail for Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth's proclamation. Hail. Hail. This podcast episode will be discussing the most recently released episodes on Netflix. Make sure you have watched them before listening, or you might be spoiled. You have been warned, so it is written, so shall it be done. Hail. Hey everybody, welcome back to Podcast Lilibet. Matt here with you, and this time around, we are looking at just the music of the first four episodes of the final season of The Crown, encapsulated in what they call Part 1, which was released on November 16th of 2023. We will be having more coverage of the episodes themselves coming up next week, but because this is a holiday week for the U.S., I just would thought I would take the time to do this first, and that way you have a little bit of content for your holiday weekend while you're doing shopping or whatever you're doing, and uh, my co-hosts get a break. Bubba and Susan will be returning to talk about episodes two, three, and four next week, but I will be just doing this by myself. I want to remind you that this particular podcast episode will be covering all of the first part of the crown season six so spoilers for all four of the episodes i'm not going to talk about any kind of historical context or anything like that this isn't a review of the acting or anything like that merely a review of the music and just a reminder you can always contact the podcast at lilibet pod l-i-l-i-bet pod on the site formerly known as twitter or you can send emails to me, mattsaudioblog at gmail.com. Don't forget about our contest. The YouTube link is in the show notes explaining what it is. I mispronounce names and all kinds of words all of the time, as you can hear me mispronouncing, even talking to you right now. So uh, the idea is to guess what I intended to say based on what you hear me say. And there's five different selections. The person with the most correct guesses wins a $100 gift card from Amazon on me. And you can submit those answers to me via the ways I just described. Or you can also send them to the Double P Media accounts as well. On all social accounts, you can find Double P at the word double, the letters PHQ. That includes Facebook, facebook.com slash the word double, the letters PHQ. And you can also leave comments on our YouTube videos, or you can leave a comment on the video that I did, which is not part of the Double P Media YouTube, but the, the contest video is actually on my feed. Wherever you want to leave the comment, but to find the YouTube videos where you can Get all of the Double P Media content, including Murder at the End of the World, which Bubba is covering right now with his Let's Solve series. You can find all of those videos and you can comment on any of them by going to youtube.com slash at the word double, the letter P, the word media. That's enough podcast business. Let's get right into talking about the music.
the complexity and the meaning of music changes throughout this series. And I think it changes from season to season. And I also think it varies between directors. A lot of the performances in this part one of season six are new performances, although some are repurposed themes that are being applied to different things. Most of the performances, not all, but most of the performances seem to be new performances that have been performed since the original versions of these themes have been performed. And they're all fascinating. They're all great. But I've kind of lost interest in trying to find some kind of continuity in it because certain themes that are titled or even used under specific characters seem to get changes uh, in last season and in this season. And I, it, assigning meaning to the themes doesn't seem to have near as much prevalence as to terms of character or even plot as it does just for emotional feeling these days, which is really what the function of a musical score does, is it's supposed to make you feel something in addition to what you're seeing on the screen or the acting or the dialogue that you're hearing. So it doesn't really change the motivation behind film scoring, but it, it does kind of change the ins and outs, and it has. And it, it's one kind of complaint that I have, but again, I don't know if I can pin that on Phipps himself or if this is simply what he's being told to do, because ultimately a composer does answer to the directors, does answer to the showrunners in terms of what they do. Let me give you a couple of examples of this. Um, the theme Be My Portrait, which was composed by Lawrence Balfe uh, in season two, and originally it was kind of a Margaret theme, and it's even been used as a Margaret theme since Phipps took over when she hung out or first saw Peter Townsend, the older version played by Timothy Dalton. We heard little snippets of it then as well. And it was kind of a theme of not really necessarily theirs, but it was a theme of her and the person that she ended up marrying, the photographer. It kind of was their theme as well. So it's just kind of a love theme, so to speak, or at least it has been portrayed as that, even if you don't want to assign it to specific characters. But here it's used as Diana and the kids are on the boat approaching the island. And I don't really get what that's about. I'm Obviously, Diana loves her kids, so if you want to go to that kind of literal translation of it being a love theme, I suppose you could like that. But it had always been kind of a romantic love theme before. So I don't know what the purpose of this was. Was it to say, hey... Diana's going to fall in love here. Well, if you look at the four episodes in total uh, for this part one, you see that Diana actually did not fall in love with Dodie in any way, shape, or form. So I don't get what the purpose of putting that particular theme was there, except it was just pretty. It was calm. It was lovely. And, you know, the scene of them coming up on the island was lovely. Um, so it just kind of generated a feeling. And there's no nothing wrong with that, again. Uh, but it's hard for me, someone who uh, follows a Javadi or a Giacchino who really assigns thematic material to characters and, and plot points uh, to find any kind of sense of order in the way that this is scored. Not to sound too grumpy, 
Um, there's another cut, I don't know, somewhere around the 42 minute mark, uh, where we hear Hasnat, which was the love theme for Diana and, of course, the Doctor in season five. And this is when Dodie and Diana exchanged looks. Um, so, yeah, this is kind of a love theme. And yes, you kind of get the impression that they kind of like each other at this point. So I don't really have as much of a problem with that. Um, on the other hand, almost kind of an inverse variation of that chord was used for Charles and Camila when Charles was toasting her. Um, it wasn't the exact same theme, but it was taking it was taking those chords and it was kind of reversing the order of them. Is there some kind of symbolic meaning in that, in the fact that Charles and Camila's relationship is solid and kind of in the opposite direction of the star-crossed way that Diana and Hasnet's uh, relationship ends up being? I don't know. Uh, it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Most of the themes that we hear are themes that we've already heard. There is some new music in this season. Uh, we'll cover that a little bit later in this episode. But let's get into breaking down one moment that I really liked from this episode, and I want to talk about it. And also the music that you got that wasn't scored by Phipps, but was added by like your music supervisors. So your music supervisors are Sarah Bridge and Ian Cook, uh, who both did a magnificent job of picking out tunes that would put you in the time period as to whether they were actually some of Diana's favorites or what have you. Not sure, uh, but it helps definitely to add drama to these types of things. I uh, also want to credit the fact that Phipps's score is performed by the Chamber Orchestra of London for these recordings. And uh, Andrew Skeet is your orchestrator. Orchestrators are very important. They're the people who kind of make, turn everything that a composer writes and turns it into parts for people to play. Uh, and another essential part of scoring a film is your who scores or who mixes the score, and that's Olga Fitzroy as well. And uh, interestingly enough, if you cycle all the way through the credits, and you do see that uh, some older themes by other composers, such as Balfe, and such as Rupert Gregson Williams, uh, themes that he did like Wolverton's Splash, which is very evident in, in season four, or in episode four of season six, as far as Sarah Bridge and Ian Cook's role as music supervisors, they're the people who have to secure the rights from artists to put popular music into their pieces of art, their film. And they're sometimes are responsible for choosing the pieces that are done, sometimes responsible for, you know, getting the rights, as I just said. So what we got in episode one was uh, tub thumping by Chumbawamba, I get knocked down, all of that, when Diana and William are, are in the car going to see Tony Blair. We got uh, Fast Love by George Michael. That was uh, during the helicopter ride, uh, or the helicopter waiting to take Diana and the kids to the airport. Then you got uh, Felix Mendelssohn's Movement Number 2 on Dante uh, of Symphony Number 1 in C minor, Opus 11. Uh, not sure who performed that, but that was the piece. 
And that is heard in the background as Camilla is watching Charles as he's supervising the raising of the tent and the preparations for the party. Uh, Good Enough by Dodgy uh, was another cut that we heard. That was when the paparazzi were on the boats, uh, kind of hounding Diana when she was in the green suit, Walking on the Sun by Smash Mouth. Uh, that's when uh, Dodie goes swimming with Diana and all the kids on the boat. Now, I couldn't identify uh, the piece that the harp player was playing actually at Camilla's birthday party. So if you have any ideas about what that piece was, please contact me. It may be an original piece, but it sounds vaguely familiar. So it's probably some kind of classical piece that I just don't know the name of or have heard maybe only one or two times before. Uh, but if that's the case that it is an original piece, it's really well done, and hopefully it'll show up on the Season 6 official soundtrack, which will be released on December 14th, December 20th, somewhere in there. Uh, so we'll get it after Part 2 drops is basically when we will get that season of uh, official soundtrack uh, from Mr. Phipps. Young Hearts Run Free by Candy Stanton. That was that kind of disco-y kind of sounding piece uh, that Charles and Camilla were dancing to at the party. And Diana was playing some tunes that kind of sound familiar to me on the piano, although they could have just been kind of doodling as well. I don't want to put too much credence in the fact that she was actually performing some kind of tune. By the way, if you didn't know, Diana actually did perform the piano a lot. I'll put a link in the show notes of a YouTube video of her performing actually a pretty complicated piece of music. And she only plays just a couple of bars of it, uh, but she did it at a music school or what have you. They made Charles play the cello and then she played the piano. And uh, it's kind of a fun clip to see her actually playing the piano. And uh, I have no idea whether Elizabeth DeBecky actually played that didn't look like it based on the shot angles, like she was actually playing the music. But who knows? I don't want to short Elizabeth DeBecky of any credit. Uh, but if you have any idea of what those two tunes were supposed to be that she played, there were two different ones uh, for certain. And, but if you know what they were, let me know once again at LilibitPod on the site formerly known as Twitter, or you can send emails to mattsaudioblog.com. You can also contact at the word double the letters PHQ on any of the socials, or you can leave comments on our YouTubes. Double P Media is the spelling for YouTube, the word double the letter P, the word media. Let's talk about one particular piece of music that I just found absolutely fantastic in this particular episode. And it's really the last few minutes of the episode. It's all one final cue that is pretty much takes up the last couple of minutes and then continues on through the credits as they're going off. By the way, folks, with these particular episodes, I am going to recommend to you, don't hit that next episode button quick just yet. Watch the credits, and even if you're not paying attention to all of the wonderful people who work to put this show on, listen to the music because it really sets the tone, almost kind of encapsulates the mood of the entire episode. Phipps's strongest work sometimes is actually when there's nobody on screen uh, and, and all you have are the credits going. I, I found some of his ending cuts 
to be deeply moving. And I found this one to be very moving. It really got me in a gut place, maybe because, you know, you know what's going to be coming with Diana and what have you. But there was this also this bounciness in this piece, which, of course, doesn't have a title yet because we haven't gotten a release of the season six official soundtrack. But there's like this bounciness. And that bounciness comes from a couple of different places. You know that I like to talk about music in terms of the melodic shape, how high or how low does the melody go, the rhythm, you know, how fast do the notes move? How do they move in relation to each other? Uh, Harmony, uh, what kinds of notes being played at the same time make us feel certain emotions? And of course, timbre, the instruments that are used to play all of these parts can also be very helpful in telling the story. And here, this piece has such a great combination of everything in it. Uh, it actually mixes two priorly composed pieces. In fact, if you check out the season four official soundtrack, you'll get a lot of things that inform this last cut. Uh, there's a cut called Your Royal Highness from the season four official soundtrack, which a lot of this is based on. But it also mixes in other elements of things from like the the simple harp piece, which has always been used to kind of represent um, some things that are interesting about the royals and especially about Diana in season four and season five. Fairy tale, uh, which has the timbre qualities of the voices. All of these things are kind of combined in this last one. So let's break it down. So if my voice sounds a little different to you here, it's because I have moved over to my music portion of the studio as opposed to the podcast portion of the studio, which is basically in my kitchen. But the final moments from the time that Diana gets on the boat all the way through the credits, there's a piece that borrows from actually two different pieces distinctly and maybe a few elements from other pieces as well. I'm hoping that this gets included in the season six official soundtrack. If it doesn't, to me, it would be a shame because it's really just gorgeous. I mentioned before that there is a tune called Her Royal Majesty from the season four official soundtrack and a particular element that I just mentioned, the bounciness of this particular piece is generated through the meter and through the way that the beats are subdivided. You may be familiar with jazz and swing music. And swing music has this element where eighth notes are read by the musicians, not necessarily evenly. They're geared more towards a triplet type of subdivision, meaning that there are three sections in between each beat as opposed to the normal two. And what musicians do is, is when they see things written in eighth notes and they're playing in a swing fashion that second eighth note actually gets placed closer to the third triplet as opposed to directly in between. And that gives everything this bounciness because you're going quickly from one portion of the beat to the other and holding a little longer on the other part. And that's the way that Her Royal Majesty actually starts and this piece actually starts as well. What you're getting is the chord tones from the simple harp variation, but you're getting them in that swingy kind of feel. And that's what I'm referring to as the bounciness. The other part that is from Her Royal Majesty 
is this little line that's played in the voices, which may be actual performing voices, or it may just be a synth emulating voices, which is what I actually suspect, timbrely. But that sounds like this. So, essentially, we have the basis for the Her Royal Majesty thing, and we've included some of the arpeggios from Simple Harp, yet what happens then is as Mumu is overlooking the situation, the music kind of blends into the more straight version of Simple Harp. And you can tell how that feels completely different. All of the beats are very right on the mark. There's no bounciness in this particular part, right? And that takes kind of some of the fun out of it as well, which gives us an indication of Muhammad's manipulations, the double M. So we've got a triple M here, uh, Muhammad musical manipulation through this straight kind of performance of Simple Harp. But after that, it returns to the Her Royal Majesty portion. And we get the timbre of the guitar. And I love the timbre of the guitar in this particular instance because it's so surprising and not used a whole lot in the crown, although it has been used, but it's just not used a whole lot in the crown. And the parts that are being played on guitar are actually two different parts from the original Her Royal Majesty, all being played in the guitar part. The first part, the guitar, actually I think it goes between some woodwinds and things in the original version, but later on in that piece you also get it on the guitar. And that sounds like this. So you can see that the bounciness has returned. But to make things more complex, there's a second part in there as well that adds harmonic depth to it. Simply by putting these sets of notes on top, everything starts to move even more. It feels more complex. And that kind of helps add the weight of what's going to happen to Diana to us a little bit, despite that bounciness. The bounciness is a representation of her in this particular case, but the complexity is a representation of the feelings that we're all feeling if we know historically what happens. And there's just something about that whole motive that just really makes me feel a sense of movement. Now, you might call what is happening with that guitar line, an ostinato pattern. Because it does not change, no matter what the harmony is underneath it. And when the chords come in, the fact that it doesn't change, the fact that it stays true, despite whatever's happening underneath it, now gives it a sense of seriousness. And the fact that this piece is placed in A minor also gives it a seriousness because minor harmonies tend to feel more serious than major harmonies. A minor chord is different than a major chord, and they create different kinds of feelings. Pythagoras taught us that a couple thousand years ago. That's also why that bounciness, which tends to make us just feel a little lighter 
gets diminished is by the overall harmony of the piece. But listen to this chord progression that plays underneath, meaning the harmony that is playing underneath this ostinato pattern. There's a chord in there that just completely freaks me out, and that is this chord. That chord is called a half-diminished chord, and it's usually used, especially in minor keys, as the substitute for the four chord. When I'm assigning numbers to these, and you don't really need to know them, but when I'm assigning numbers to these chords, it's based on the scale step of that key that the chord is built from. In this case, it's based on the sixth. It's a sixth, what we call half diminished, meaning that the fifth note of the chord is actually lowered down because in order to fit the harmony. And what it creates is this absolute need for something to resolve. And of course, we do get that resolution. We get it to here which actually feels like it needs to start to move somewhere as well, as we heard at the beginning of that. But nonetheless, it feels like it has to move somewhere because really those notes can be substituted for a dominant chord. In this case, would have been the four dominant chord. And actually, as the piece goes on, Phipps kind of waffles between the chord I just played and this chord. That note moving in the middle of the chord is called a suspension, and it creates even more tension and more resolution. And the fact that you are finding a major four chord in a minor key always seems a little weird. It creates a sense of something not being in the order that it's supposed to be. And sometimes that creates hope. Sometimes that just creates weirdness. When you put that minor seven flat five chord in there, the first one that I played, that really accentuates that. But then there is another element that is added as the credits are going. Well, you actually hear this melody a little bit while we're seeing the scenery, but it becomes the main feature of the piece as the credits are going. And man, this really gets me because it's got the bounce in it too, but it just feels haunting, especially with the harmony going on underneath it. I'm talking about this. I love the way in the middle how those notes that are on the second of the chord, the B notes, how they change rhythm, which throws you off a little bit. And it just makes the whole piece uncomfortable, which helps accentuate the fact that we are feeling uncomfortable about this whole situation. And that's how Phipps, in his in-credit music, can really encapsulate an entire episode. And it's beautiful. I absolutely love it. So there's your analysis for episode one. So now let's look to episode two, two photographs, and... The music that the music supervisors put in for this particular one, Defunk by Daft Punk. Uh, that's as Mario Brenner is introducing himself to us. I'm not sure what the song that was being sung on the bridge 
while the private secretary is addressing the royals about Diana and Dodie, and they're walking by, I couldn't really make it out. If you have that information, let me know at LittleBitPod or MatchAudioBlog at gmail.com or at the word double letters PHQ. Spinning the Wheel by George Michael is with Dodie and Diana on the boat. And another piece that we heard in the episode, Hush, Cool Shaker. So let's talk about this piece of music that represents Mario Brenner and the taking of the photographs because it's new and I found it very interesting. Actually, two different point parts of it. Uh, one, when he's getting onto the boat to go out to where Dodie and Diana are at. And the other one, of course, as he's taking the photographs. Before I get to the Brenner piece, one thing that I do want to talk about is, again, the final sequences for this particular episode. Because, once again, not only does going from the end and on through the credits tell the story of the episode, but it also demonstrates why that chord at the end of the first episode was so weird. So as Elizabeth and Philip are talking about Diana, you start to get this melody. And one of the things about this melody that's so great is its shape. Melodic shape tells a story. And often harmony tells us how we feel about that story. And here you hear this melody climbing, attempting to start from a single point and jump up. And it gets a little higher, but then it has to settle, but it's still rising. And this is a great representation of how Diana's popularity is surging, but also the problems that it's causing that keeps batting kind of the image of the royal family down. This melody also goes through several timbres as well, because as Elizabeth is talking about Diana, you hear that melody being played in the French horn. But when we get to Diana later, it's played in the piano. So there's two things on my list already. Let's check off the third thing, rhythm. Because as Elizabeth is talking, there is also the development of these subdivisions, meaning that we're dividing the beat into faster and faster segments. And that generates a little bit of excitement or anxiety. And that's demonstrated by this. While the harmony and even sometimes the melody is carried in the lower strings, this is going on in the higher strings. And it's mixed down pretty far, which is, again, why I emphasize how important it is to mix a score properly, so that it's not overbearing. It doesn't take center stage, but it is something that makes our heart beat just a little bit faster. Anytime we hear a faster tempo, we physiologically respond by our systems speeding up a little bit. And so the end result for while Elizabeth is talking is we kind of get this cycle of the same chords being placed over and over. This is the harmony. And again, it's going through these different timbres, but it sounds like this.
Now that's all fine and well, but the interesting thing is, is that when we do start to get that shot of Diana on the boat, kind of on the diving board, we hear this melody be played one more time, the timbre changes to piano. What have we learned about Diana in this particular set of episodes? That she plays piano a little bit. So I loved that choice, even though that probably wasn't the reason for that choice, but it also reemphasizes something about Diana's character, as opposed to the queen, who is often represented by brass and strings and woodwinds. What the difference is, is when we get to the last part of the phrase, the harmony completely changes and all of the motion stops. It's almost like we're taking a pause and taking a long look at Diana musically as well as with the camera. That sounds like this. So all of the motion is taken out of it. You get almost kind of this gut thing because once again, we know what's about to happen historically and the motion stopping helps accentuate that. The chord is a completely minor seven chord. So it's not just a straight minor chord. It's got an extra note added in it that adds even more depth to it that makes it feel more on the sad side as opposed to the scary side. And that's where the harmony really comes into play because when you compare it to what we were just talking about where substitutions or the four chord itself was major in a minor key, that's a totally different feeling than getting that minor sound when the four chord is minor. What if I played that entire sequence and ended that last chord in the same way that Phipps did in the episode one final cut, it would sound like this. And that gives you a totally different feeling from where the piece actually ended, right? It gives it a little more pause, a little bit more weirdness, even perhaps a little bit of hope, and that's because the four chord is major, which is a lighter feeling, as opposed to the minor. Listen to the difference of the sound between the two chords. The minor seven four chord, the major chord, or dominant seven. Those kinds of harmonic choices can really make a difference for making music an accurate narrative device. As for the Brenner aspect of this particular episode, where he is going to the boat and getting the photographs, I thought I wouldn't run this long already, but uh, so I'm just going to do the part where he's actually taking the photographs. But actually, there is an aspect of that sequence that reflects not only the sequence right before where he's getting to the boat to get on and all of that stuff, but also it's kind of reflected again in episode three when the paparazzi are chasing Diana and Dodie all over Paris, specifically the ones on the motorcycles. You have this steady pulse beat that's very short, what we call staccato in the bass. And what that does is it creates tension. And it also creates this anchor point from which 
different harmonies can be played over the top of, which can create even more tension and can sometimes even resolve the tension as well. So as Brenner is getting to the boat, and as I said, even when he's getting on his little craft to get to the boat, there's this plotting sound like this. Now that creates a certain sense of tension, but how do we elevate that tension? We do it rhythmically through more subdivision. And so you start to get these extra little beats thrown in that help things feel like they're faster, like this. And that's not even enough tension for when he's actually taking the photographs. So we start to get even further subdivisions. We've already had one eighth note subdivision. Let's make it even more tense by dividing that in half and getting some sixteenth note subdivisions. Now things are really riveting, but note that all of this is just based on a single note. It's just establishing the key and all harmony that can be applied to it is a completely open palette because these are just single notes. They could be major, they could be minor, they could be diminished, they could be augmented. All different kinds of chords that generate different kinds of feelings. And Phipps goes through them all, basically. He takes the top note of the harmony and he continues to make it go higher and higher as Brenner is getting closer to his goal. But the types of harmony underneath are what actually create the tension and the resolution. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to play this for you and I'm going to tell you what kind of chord it is right after I played it. And we're going to start out with the minor four chord being played over these notes. And we just talked about how effective a minor four chord can be as opposed to a major four chord or how those can have different effects. So it starts off like this. That's a diminished chord, one of the most tense chords in music. Wait a minute, now we've resolved to a major chord. He's getting his opportunity. Flat six major. Ooh, what's gonna happen now? Another diminished, ominous. It's the one chord major, but now a dominant seven has been added. It's got to go somewhere. Back to that minor four chord. This is not a good thing. That's a chord that doesn't even fit. It's the flat two. So much tension. Now the two chord as it would exist in minor, as opposed to the major we heard before. Another diminished. The tension is really growing. That's the relative major key. He's got his shots. Success has been achieved. What will he do with the photographs? That's why it's a dominant major. All of that building is so interesting to me. I think it's just fantastic. It's a great exploration into things that are great for music theory nerds like me, because you can see how diminished chords can be used to shift between different chords. And most of those diminished chords don't really technically fit in the key itself, but they help you get to the next place. 
A lot of times these are called passing chords in big orchestral scores, but I love how each one is held out and the way that each of those emotions are felt through the music as you watch Brenner take those photographs and develop them. So let's move on to episode three now. As for the music supervisor or other things, now, I guess technically you wouldn't call this a music supervisor job, but the piano player is playing something as Diana and Dodie are coming in to eat dinner, and I'm not sure what that piece was. Of course, as Dodie does that ridiculous proposal, the song that's playing is When You Tell Me You Love Me by Julio Iglesias. And there's also a tune being played by the piano player when Henri is at the bar uh, and getting called to get the car ready. And that one sounds really familiar to me, but I just can't place it. So, sorry, I know that's not a lot of information. Something I do uh, want to talk about, though, in this particular episode is uh, the final moments. Because there's a piece of music that is brand new by Phipps called Holding Hands uh, that is used in this. And it's also used in the fourth episode. So let's break that down. So the title of the piece that takes up most of the last few moments of episode three is entitled Holding Hands. And it is a brand new piece. Actually, the Brenner stuff was brand new as well. There was lots of brand new stuff that we've covered in this particular podcast episode. But this one has actually been released to the public right as part one was dropped on Netflix. So it's kind of the promotion for the season six official soundtrack, which again will be coming out sometime around the release of part two. And this particular piece has a lot of interesting things about it, not just because of what it accompanies, which of course is the tragic last moments of Diana's life, but also in the way that it harmonically presents a lack of resolution. And I'm going to spoil the story here just a little bit, but, you know, it seems awfully convenient that Diana and Dodie have both started to decide to work on resolving their issues just moments before their death. Likely a very fictional scenario. But that unfinished business aspect actually carries through with Phipps's score. For instance, the piece is centered around the key of B, this. But you never truly get a sense of resolution of the piece because their business was unfinished, because the public's business with Diana was unfinished, because the business between Charles and Diana was unfinished. And I thought it very interesting how harmonically Phipps conveyed that through the scoring of this last piece. First, let's talk about timbres and melody. I'm not going to go through the whole melody of the first part. It's simply a French horn playing this bittersweet type of melody, beautifully played. And again, the Chamber Orchestra of London did the performances here, and this is just an absolutely haunting performance. The French horn really cuts through in the same way that Aberfan did in season three. French horn has been used a lot in this series. But I want you to listen to how 
the melody goes in relation to the bass note. Now, it's a simple enough melody, and it's pretty enough, and it's sorrowful enough, and that last dip down at the very end really makes you feel the weight of the moment. But interestingly enough, if you take the notes that are held out and you play them all at the same time, you get this chord. That chord does feel like it needs to go somewhere. It's a suspended dominant. Dominant chords always make us feel like something needs to go somewhere else. Suspended dominance can sometimes double that effect. Now, why did I play all those notes together and say that's the way you should feel? I did that because the way we perceive music isn't necessarily linear. Yes, we are addicted to rhythm, which is why we like so much symmetry in our rhythm as opposed to our harmony, which symmetric harmony creates dissonance for us. But there is this psychological effect overall that our brain takes everything in and kind of converts it into a singular idea. And that's what I'm trying to convey here. By adding that dipping lower note, not only does it feel mournful, but it also makes it all feel unresolved. The first note isn't a root. It isn't a chord tone at all. The second note is the fifth of harmony, which also represents dominant if it was the chord that everything was built on and would feel like it needs to resolve back home. So not only is the harmony that's playing underneath a melody sometimes dictating how we feel about a moment, but the shape and the notes themselves of the melody can dictate how we feel about that as well. The next part of a lack of resolution is the way that the bass note moves against a second phrase the French horn is playing, which is very similar to the first phrase, a little bit different, but because we are now placing different bass notes underneath, we get an entirely different feeling about that melody, that something is not only unresolved, but it's also going awry. None of the bass notes seem to really create a central sense of resolution. And it's very disturbing. Talking about this. It's really not until the end of that phrase that you get any sense of where the harmony originally was. And so therefore it feels lost. And actually that sequence, that last four measures that I played, are repeated several times as they are in the car and driving. But harmony is added to each of those until we get to the point where there's a crash and we end on the dominant of the key as opposed to the key feeling dominant. 
I know that I've been throwing a lot of numbers and everything at you, but it ends kind of on a suspended F sharp chord, which is the dominant of the B key. And that creates this terrible feeling of being unresolved. So the last few moments of the piece, right as the car is starting to crash and shortly after, sounds like this. It feels so musically appropriate, and the way that this episode ended left me in a pretty bad state, to be perfectly honest. Not necessarily because of my feelings about Diana or anything of that nature, but just because the music was so effective. I often get accused of being quite the softy when watching television. I kind of wear my heart out on my sleeve as I root for or against characters. And part of that, I think, for me, is because of the way that the music affects me. I have always been very affected by the way that the music accompanies scenes, which is a big reason why I got into music at all as a profession. And so, therefore, I am happy to be talking about these things, even though I think that I get a little bit more affected by them than everybody else does. With all of that said, let's move on to episode four. As for the music supervisor stuff, really the only piece that you get in this fourth episode is uh, Chopin, the Andante Spinato e Grande Polonaise Brillant. Say that three times real fast. But that's what's playing on the radio at Balmoro when the first phone call comes in. And then uh, Paranoid Android by Radiohead is playing in Will's headphones when Charles returns. And as I mentioned, that piece that's at the end of the third episode also comes into play at the towards the end of this particular episode as well. But there's something else that I really want to talk about here, and that's the use of sound mixing as well. Sometimes not playing music can be just as important as what you play when you do play music. And one of the things that I found very interesting in this particular episode was the use of a very low-pitched white noise hum that's used in those places where you can't hear the dialogue. Uh, one of them is when Mumu uh, goes to the crash site. One of them is when the doctor comes out and tells the rest of the hospital that Diana has died. One is when Charles gets the news that she's died. Um, all of these are so effective and it's not a composition. It's just a sound effect. It's, it's white, what we call white noise, which is kind of like static on a radio. For those of you who might still know what a radio sounds like, an AM radio or an FM radio, 
but it's pitched very low. And what that does is it starts to simulate something that happens to us as humans when we are shocked by something or when we lose our focus. Um, have you ever been so upset that you start to hear the blood pumping really fast near your ears? Um, it's almost that kind of sound that this low no noise generation emulates in a way. It's only happened to me once in my life, and that was when my father died. But uh, it's real. And this simulates that very well. So I just wanted to give the sound engineers props for using something not melodically, but in its own way, musically, very effectively. And with that, we're going to let you go. Once again, Bubba, Susan, and I will be back next week. Probably a two-part podcast, given that we've got to cover three episodes. But we're going to wrap up. Don't forget our, about our contest. Also, you've got to use that YouTube link in the show notes. Or you can find it pinned to the site formerly known as Twitter, the profile, LilibitPod, L-I-L-I-Bet-Pod. Let me know what you're thinking about the music, too, while you're at LilibetPod, checking out those mispronunciations. And uh, tell me what you thought of the music. Let me know in the comments below. Remember, we need you to like, to subscribe, and to get notifications for the Double P Media YouTube channel as well. If you're getting this podcast through that media or through that format. Um, and if you're listening in the audio podcast, go to the YouTube and subscribe also. Even if you don't use YouTube, if you prefer audio podcasts, just hit that subscribe button. It'll make Bubba happy. Uh, and we all like to make Bubba happy because he is really hard to deal with on a podcast when he's unhappy. I mean, my God, he's worse than me. That's all we got. See you later. to mattsaudioblog at gmail.com and find all back episodes and other information at mattsaudioblog.com.